Turn to Ephesians 1. We are continuing in our study of Ephesians today. We've worked through the opening section, verses 3 through 14, which is um, one long sentence of Paul praising God for the blessings that he's given us in Christ. And we're now working through verses 15 to 23, where Paul has shifted from praising God and he is now praying to God or at least uh, telling us what he prayed to God for this Ephesian church's growth and maturity. So I will read Ephesians 1, 15 through 22. Follow as I read. This is the Word of God. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe. According to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. Amen. So the first thing we did in this section is we focused on the simple fact that Paul prayed. Uh, he prayed for the, these Christians. He prayed for lots of Christians and churches that had been entrusted to his care. And we can learn from this that prayer is essential, not only to our own growth and maturity, but also to the growth and maturity of the others that have been entrusted to our care. Um, spouse, children, uh, family, friends, co-workers. And when you think about it in terms of the kingdom of God has come into our lives, we've been invited into this great salvation, and the kingdom of God is coming in and through us into the world. We are salt and light in the world. Um, We do have responsibility for those that God has put in our life. He has entrusted them to our care. And one of the best things we can do for them, either to come to know God or to grow uh, in Christ, is to pray for them. We may plant and we may water. We may lovingly labor in these people's lives, loving them and serving them and even sharing the gospel with them, but only God can give the growth. So we can learn a lot from the simple fact that Paul prayed. The next thing we've looked at is what Paul prayed. And lesson number one from all these things uh, that Paul prayed is, don't change a thing. Just pray the prayers of Scripture right along with them. But we also want to unpack the specifics of what Paul prayed in order that uh, when we pray these prayers of Scripture, we better understand the truth and the depth of what we are praying. So over the last two weeks, that's kind of what we've been doing, is unpacking it a little bit. Paul begins by praying that God would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, enlightening the eyes of our hearts. So what Paul is asking is that God would fill us with His Spirit, the Spirit of all wisdom and revelation, in order that the Spirit would further enlighten our hearts. And remember that the heart um, in the Scriptures means not the organ, 
but um, the center of who we are, the core of our being, which includes our mind and our will and our desires and emotions and all of those things. So Paul prayed that God would fill us with His Spirit in order that our mind would be more in tune, in order that our will would be more engaged in our decision-making, our choices, um, our actions, that our feelings and our desires would be more affected than they already are, all for the purpose of better knowing God. So then I ask the question, what does it mean to better know God? What does it mean to better know our hope in Christ? To better know His power toward us who believe? It's the same idea as when you open to the beginning of the Bible, and we did this last week, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. And again, she bore Abel. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore another son and named him Seth. For a man to know his wife is a very intimate thing. He goes into her. Likewise, to know God is a very intimate thing. Him in us, us in Him. Paul is praying that the Holy Spirit would activate our minds and our wills and our desires and emotions to further engage with God. He's asking that the Spirit of God would come into us in greater fullness and that He would bring us further into Christ. That He would make us one with the truth of the hope that we have in Christ, with the reality of our inheritance in Christ, and with the truth of His power toward us who believe. So we looked at the first two of those last week. Uh, This week and maybe next week, we are looking at uh, what it means that we would know like a man knows his wife, that we would know the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. Paul's prayer is that we would be one with the truth of the power of God toward us who believe. That we would not only better see this truth, but that it would take us over. That we would know God's power toward us. That we would think and feel and live and move and do and be in light of God's power toward us who believe. So the first thing we need to do uh, is we need to unpack the second half of verse 19 through verse 22 because Paul um, goes into great detail to develop God's power in Christ so that we can understand God's power toward us. So I'll read that again. God's power toward us who believe is according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him as head over all things to the church. We're going to talk about... uh, what it means that He's head over all things and has been given as head over all things to the church. We'll talk about that either next week or the next. But um, Paul goes into great detail to develop God's power in Christ so that we can better understand His power toward us because God's power toward us, the text says, is according to God's power in Christ in His resurrection, His ascension, and His kingly rule over all things. So really, the main goal of today is to focus on what Paul is telling us, what Paul prayed um, about God's power in Christ, so that we can better know God's power toward us. So what does the text tell us about God's power in Christ? Number one, God worked His great might in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. Um, 
maybe you've never thought about this being an important issue, but uh, this struck me because I've had someone tell me before that we can't say that Jesus didn't raise Himself. Um, But after a little study, as we'll look today, I think we can. And so the question is, did God raise Jesus or did Jesus raise Jesus? Maybe you never thought about it, but maybe this will help. Uh, Turn to John 10 first. John 10, we'll be looking at verses 17 and 18. And again, remember the question, did God raise Jesus or did Jesus raise Jesus? John 10, 17 and 18 says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So, the person that says we can't say that God raised Jesus, but we should say that Jesus raised Jesus, goes to this text and says, see, He has authority to take up His life. Um, In John 2, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus also says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Okay, But then you have uh, the Apostles' message of what took place in the resurrection. So turn just one book to the right to Acts chapter 2. Jesus has just died. He has uh, resurrected, been raised from the dead, and He's ascended back to heaven. Um, he's given the Great Commission. He's told, told the, the disciples, apostles, to, to go and um, wait on the Holy Spirit. And uh, the Holy Spirit has just come and filled God's people to carry on Jesus' mission in the world. And in Acts 2, Peter preaches the first Christian sermon. The point I want to show you uh, is that over and again, Peter says that God raised Jesus from the dead. He says it twice here in the first sermon. Look at uh, Acts 2, 24 to 30, and 32. Acts 2, 24. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Look at 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. So, twice in the first Christian sermon, Peter says that God raised Jesus. The next time Peter speaks is in Acts chapter 3. Look at verse 15. I'll read 14. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. So he, this is something that he's really grabbed onto, and he continues to say the next time he speaks is in Acts 4. Look at verse 10. Acts 4, verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead... By Him, this man is standing before you well. And again, look at Acts chapter 10, verses 39 to 41. Peter speaking again. Acts 10, 39 to 41. And we are witnesses of all that He did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put Him to death by hanging Him on a tree, but God raised Him on the third day and made Him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses who ate and drank with Him after He rose from the dead. 
In Acts 13, Paul speaks. Paul has just been converted and uh, he's, he's now an apostle, one of the chief leaders of the church. You look at Acts 13, look at verses 29 and 30. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. There you go. Paul picks up uh, the same thing. Look at 32 to 34. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it was written in the second Psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Interestingly there, when he talks about today I have begotten you, he's not talking about the begotten son in the sense of when he was conceived. He's talking about today I have begotten you in the sense of resurrection. So that term is actually used uh, both ways. Just It may play later into what I'm going to say. Uh, it is going to play later. So, <laughs> 36 and 37, Acts 13. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So you, you see the point. Paul again says this in Acts 17.31. Again, four times in Romans. Three times in the Corinthians letters. Again in Colossians. Again in Galatians. First Thessalonians. And of course... In our passage today, Ephesians 1.20, the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe is according to His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. There's more. Hebrews, 1 Peter. I mean, over 20 times the apostles say that God raised Jesus from the dead. This is an important issue. So, uh, it's so important that Paul says in Romans 10, listen to this. I had not seen this until I was studying this this week. You know, you know this passage, but I bet you didn't know the second part of it. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe with your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you will be saved. So this is essential. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Jesus. Then you will be saved. So, um, Jesus clearly says that He has the authority not only to lay down His life, but also to take it up again. But when you consider this in light of the other biblical texts, that there are so many about God raising Jesus from the dead, I think it's best to understand, uh, of course, we know the, the first principle we know in reading the Scriptures is it doesn't contradict itself. So, if we don't understand it, we don't understand it. And that's okay. We need to pray that God would help us. And we're never going to come to a perfect understanding of how it all fits together. But um, that's, how, that's just how we should read the Bible. Well, there's this over here, and then there's this, and does that... No, there's no contradiction. Of course, the critics would say that there is, but there's not. So, um, when you consider this in light of the other texts about God raising Jesus from the dead, I think it's best to understand what Jesus is saying in John as talking to men about the fact that no man has the authority to take his life. Jesus alone was given the authority to lay down his life. And the only reason he died is because he willingly gave himself over to death for for you and me. And I think when he says, I have the authority to take up my life again, I think we should understand him as speaking as a member of the Trinity. Uh, The very next section, Jesus is saying in John 10, "I I and the Father are one. It's like when he says, I am. And they all know what he means. He's claiming to be deity. He's claiming to be God. He's making himself one with the Father. So when he says, I have authority to raise my life from the dead, um, it's the same as his saying, I am. It's a statement of his godness. 
And of course, God is triune, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I think this is important um, because there's obviously something that God wants us to know about His power toward us who believe. And His power toward us is according to His power that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead by the power of the Spirit. And so, the resurrection was a Trinitarian affair. And that's important for us to know um, as we consider God's power toward us who believe. I also think it better helps us understand the love of God and, and better understand the fullness of the sacrifice of Christ. In His death, Jesus fully entrusted Himself to the Father. He died on the cross under the full wrath of God, not, not feeling anything of the bond, the eternal bond that He had known with the Father for all eternity. It never even started. It just always was. They had always had this bond and He was not feeling any of that Um, on the cross. Yet Luke tells us in that state that the last thing Jesus said is, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last. Jesus fully entrusted himself to the Father even as he was suffering for our sins under the wrath of the Father. And Jesus really died. He really was dead, like emptied of all life. He fully trusted the Father and He fully entrusted Himself to the Father in His death. And I think this means that it's safe to say that if God did not raise Jesus, Jesus would not have been raised. It shows us more of the sacrifice of Christ. Yet it also shows us more of the love of the Father and frankly, the love of God. The love within the Trinity. Um, Kind of an aside, but... When you think about creation, you know, God existed in this self-giving, overflowing, glory-displaying love for all eternity. And then He created. He didn't create because He needed anything. He was completely full in Himself, Father, Son, and Spirit. The purpose of creation was to give, to spread this self-giving love, this overflowing love and glory, and to display that um, among His creatures. And... uh, so, um, this is what happens when you, when you go on a tangent. You, you forget what you're going to say. But, um, anyway, it, I think it shows us more of the love of the Trinity because he, he fully trusted the Father and the Spirit that this was the plan, that I'm going to go die, but He knew God. He knew the love of God. And he knew, like we've been talking about knowing, he knew that he was going to be, uh, that he was going to come get him. So God brought Jesus from death to life. God uh, worked his great might in Christ when he raised Jesus from the dead. So when we think about God's power toward us, some things to be thinking about, and maybe we'll further develop these next week, uh, I don't know, but... Jesus went from death to life, and, and really dead to life. And this gives us hope when facing our own death. Maybe some of us don't think about that very much, but I assure you, uh, maybe some of us do, but there are many people in this church that do. You know, John Otley's class does. Think about it a lot. Because, you know what? Another one of their group died this week. I mean, and it just happens. We're all going to die. And so... Um, I remember Jessica Anderson saying in here one day that the best way to deal with your fears and anxieties is to consider the worst possible outcome and to prayerfully work through that with the Lord. 
That's great advice. Um, well, I'm, I'm a person who's been prone to severe anxiety and panic attacks in my life, and the climax of every panic attack is a very real, very real fear of death. And while I don't go through this much anymore, my mind is still capable of going into these uh, dark places, and sometimes it's like God allows my mind to get on the edge of the cliff and just remember kind of where it can go. Um, I don't want to go back into the abyss, but God may want me to. And again... The worst possible scenario in a panic attack is always death. You're always thinking about death. It's, I'm going to die. That's how, that's how you feel. That's the fear. Well, you know what? The next time I experience a very real fear of death, whether it's because of panic attack or an illness or old age, um, whatever the case, it's time for me, it's time for us to lean into that fear. It's time for me to consider God's power toward us who believe. Because it's, a, it's according to the power that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead. But not only does it help us in passing through death, it also helps us in this life. Even when there seems to be, or, or there, in fact there is, an absence of life in this world. Even where death seems to be all that we see and there's just no hope. Well, Jesus was really dead. And, and Jesus really was raised from the dead. We serve a resurrected Lord, and our Father in heaven is the God of the resurrection whose power it was that raised Jesus from the dead. So, we serve the God of the resurrection. He delights in taking death and bringing life. So wherever there's death, and wherever you're overwhelmed by the fact that there's nothing but death, and that death is all I see, we'll consider His power toward us who believe. Um, and His power at work in the world, it is resurrection power. Also, what does this mean for our fight against sin? If God's power toward us is according to the power that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, what does that mean for our fight against sin? Second thing I want you to see is that God worked His great might in Christ when He seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. Um, the first thing that had to be that had to happen in order for Jesus to be seated at the right hand of God is he had to be taken up from earth by God, and that's exactly what happened. Turn back to uh, Acts chapter one. God's power toward us who believe is according to the working of His great might that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. And in order to seat Him at His right hand, He had to take Him to heaven. Um, look at Acts chapter 1. So, God had brought Jesus into the world, conceived Him in Mary's womb by the Holy Spirit. He raised Him from the dead by the power of the Spirit, and He took Him to heaven um, and, and seated Him at His right hand by the power of the Spirit. You might think I'm nitpicking with all this stuff, but I think it's essential for us to see because there's something that God wants us to see about His power toward us. And, and so we need to... Look at this. Acts 1, 1 through 2. In this first book, in the first book of Theophilus, Luke wrote Luke and Acts. And so Acts is the second book by Luke. Uh, in the first book, that being the Gospel of Luke, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit uh, to the apostles whom he had chosen. Look down at verse 8. But you will receive, receive what? Power, His power toward us who believe. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, 
and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So, point is simply that we see that Jesus was lifted up. At, uh, Mark, at the end of his gospel, says, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, to his disciples, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So God's power toward us is according to His power that He worked in Christ when He took Him to heaven and when He seated Him at His right hand. Now, what does it mean that um, what does it mean that He's at the right hand of God? You know, first thing we know is God is spirit and He doesn't have hands. So uh, we can know right off the bat that this is symbolic for something. In the Old Testament, this language was used to communicate God's power and authority. You don't have to turn there as we run out of time, but um, in Exodus, right after God had delivered Israel out of slavery under the tyrant ruler Pharaoh in Egypt, Moses writes a song. And in Exodus 15, verse 6, he says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Then again, in Psalm 98, verse 1, God's right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. So, God's right hand refers to His authority and His power, not only that He defeats His enemies, but also that He saves His people. All of that is a display of His authority and His power to do so. So, when, God, when, when the Scripture tells us that God has taken Jesus up to heaven and He seated Him at His right hand, this means that God has entrusted Jesus with all power and authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus reigns. This is where we get things like He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. This is the fulfillment of God's covenant with David. We talk about this quite a bit in here. All the way back in 2 Samuel 7, probably about a thousand years before the time of Christ, God promised David David, that he would eternally have a son on his throne. Of course, David's throne was the greatest symbol of power and authority for the people of Israel. But it was only a shadow of of the things to come. Jesus is the true and better David, seated at the right hand of God, having been entrusted with all power and authority by God to rule not only as king over Israel, but as king over all nations. And not only over all nations, but over all things, heaven and earth. Look back at Ephesians 1 because Paul goes into great detail about the nature of uh, Jesus' authority at the right hand of God. God seated uh, Jesus at His right hand in the heavenly places. We see in verses 21 and 22, kind of spells that out. And just to say, this is Jesus now. Jesus is on the throne of all thrones. He is the Lord of all people. He is the Lord of all nations. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. The question is not, for anyone, the question is not whether Jesus is Lord. The question is whether or not you submit to His Lordship now and enjoy all of its benefits for all of eternity or whether you will be forced into submitting to His Lordship at the end when there are no more benefits to be had. The blessings and benefits of salvation in the Lord Jesus are being offered to all the world now. But the time will come when the door closes and there are no more opportunities for the blessing to be handed out. 
If you have yet to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, today is the day. Jesus is Lord over all people. Jesus is Lord over all nations. He is Lord over heaven and earth. Um, I want to close by showing, I was going to show you two passages, but I don't have time. There's a passage in Colossians 2 about on the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. And when it says like rulers, authorities, powers, dominions, it says that in Ephesians, it's talking about spiritual forces, Satan, demons, all of that. And it says, essentially the picture in this passage in Colossians 2 is that Jesus disarmed the, the Satan and demons and He walked them through, you know, in a war or something when the crowds are cheering and the enemy's coming in chains. That's basically the picture we get from Colossians 2. Is Jesus defeated. He won. He won the victory. It's over. Of course, it's not over, but it's over. I mean, He will return to prove it. But it's not that He hasn't won. It's that He won, and He's now fleshing out the victory in, in real time and space. But I want you to look at Psalm 2, and this has to do with Jesus' rule over all nations. I'll read all of it. It's not that long. Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Does this sound familiar? We prayed for Iraq last week where the leaders of that nation have said to the Christians, get out or we're going to kill you. I mean, there's a pretty good commentary on verses 1-3. through But they, they rage and they plot in vain. Verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying... As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Remember, this is quoted in Acts 13. I pointed it out to you earlier, and it's a reference to the resurrection. It's, Paul says that in reference to the resurrection and ascension and the fact that Jesus has been placed as authority over all. And so that's what this means. When he says, Today I have begotten you, it means today... You've been risen from the dead and you've been ascended back to heaven. You've been given all power and authority and you reign. Um, Ask of me, this is God saying to Jesus, Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In Daniel chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar has a vision of uh, all these different utensils bursting into one another. And the vision means, and it's spelled out in Daniel chapter 2, that God's kingdom will crush all other kingdoms. God's kingdom is the king of, is the kingdom of all kingdoms. And so that's a reference to Daniel chapter 2. Now therefore, verse 10, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So the question for the nations is not, is Jesus Lord? He is Lord. The question is whether the nations or the leaders of nations will submit to His Lordship. So here's an idea. Next time you come across the corruption of a nation, be it in our own country or all that's going on over in Russia, Ukraine... Um, 
or like in Iraq, well, like we've talked about, open your Bible and pray Psalm 2 for that nation. Pray Psalm 2 for our president. Pray Psalm 2 for that leader of that nation. Pray Psalm 2 for the local leaders in our city. And pray that God would raise people up to go and minister to them in the name of Christ who is Lord and simply say, just submit now because then you get all the blessings. I mean, you're going to submit eventually, but do it now and you'll be with them for all of eternity. Psalm 2 is very evangelistic. I love that. Let me read that again, the end of it. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry, and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. That's a different picture than we get of Jesus, isn't it? That's a revelation picture of Jesus. I mean, that's the picture with the guy with the sword coming out of his mouth and a tattoo on his leg. That's what He looks like now. Read Revelation. I mean, His eyes are burning with fire and His hair is white with glory. This is Jesus as Lord. His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Today we've mostly looked at God's power in Christ and the reason is because the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us. That's an amazing statement. The immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe is according to to God's power that He worked in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand. So think this week. Think for the rest of your life about what this means. But don't just think. Pray this prayer. This is a prayer in Scripture. Lord, give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowing You. Enlighten the eyes of our hearts that we might better know You like a man knows his wife, that we might better know the immeasurable greatness of Your power toward us who believe. It's according to the the power that you worked in Christ when you raised Him from the dead and seated Him at your right hand. God gave Jesus authority and power over all things and His power toward us is according to that. Let's pray. Father, I... Uh, this is a lot to consider. It's, it's very encouraging um, why we have been chosen as those to whom you've revealed yourself is beyond me. We are nothing but sinful people, and yet we're thankful today because of your grace poured out on us. Lord, um, this is a vision that we need of Christ now. You've given Him all authority and all power. And uh, I do pray that you would prepare our hearts and work deep in our hearts. Fill us with your Spirit, Lord, that uh, we might better know you, that we might better know this power. Uh, your power toward us. Help us to know these things in facing death or in helping others face death. Help us to know these things in our fight against sin or in evangelism. I mean, weak Peter, who denied Christ three times, gives the first many sermons in the book of Acts because he knows this power. Help us to know this power. Father, You've given us the same power that You worked in Christ when You raised Him from the dead and seated Him at Your right hand. Lord, I, I pray that You would help us to understand. These things are too good for us. They're, they're beyond us, but work them deep into our hearts. And uh, we do pray for Your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.